Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. I'm Roman Baratiak, the Associate Director at the UCSB Arts and Lectures Program. And uh, I haven't been this excited about an event probably in 30 years. So... It's a real treat and honor and just a blessing for us to have Werner Herzog here this evening. And really, I want to thank Werner very, very much. He slotted us into a very, very tight schedule. And I think all of us that are here tonight uh, are just delighted and thrilled that he's here. So thank you very much, Werner Herzog. The uh, format for this evening, uh, Pico Iyer, who will be leading the conversation, uh, they'll be in conversation for approximately 80 minutes. Pico's great. And then I will have a handheld microphone, and I'll go around in the audience and try to select out people for the Q&A period. We'll do that probably for about 20 minutes or so. And then we'll follow that with a signing up here on the stage. We'll bring out two tables. Uh, Borders is in the lobby. They have copies of uh, Werner Herzog's uh, two books, and they also have Pico Iyer's book on the Dalai Lama, The Open Road. And uh, that'll be the evening. Werner's very kindly agreed. If you have a camera, we can take some photographs as well at the end. Uh, I'm going to introduce P Pico, and then Pico will introduce uh, Mr. Herzog. Uh, Pico Iyer is a Santa Barbara, a part-time Santa Barbara resident these days, spending much of his time in Japan, in Kyoto. He's the author of several books about cultures converging. Pico's First book, Video Night in Kathmandu, has appeared on many lists of the top travel books of all time. And his second, The Lady and the Monk, was a finalist for the LA Times Book Award. His recent book, The Open Road, The Global Journey of the 14th Dalai Lama, reflects on his revered friend, the 14th Dalai Lama's ideas and work as a religious leader, as a politician, a scientist, and philosopher. His articles appear often in the New York Review of Books, Harper's, and Time Magazine, He's a great friend of our programs. Please welcome Pico Iyer. I sort of feel to do justice to our guest today, I ought to be hobbling out with a hunchback, um, a mad gleam in my eye, a monkey in my arms who looks like a homunculus, and probably a mad chicken dancing in the center of the stage. Uh, but I better restrain myself because all I want to do is be quiet and listen to this man we've been waiting to hear for 30 or 40 years. So I've been asked, as you heard, uh, just to offer a brief introduction for the handful of you who haven't been following him for years and years. Uh, and then I'll be as quiet as possible, and I'm hoping he's going to speak and speak and speak. Uh, as all of you know, I think Werner Herzog has directed operas at La Scala and in Bayreuth and in Tokyo. He's directed the play Midsummer Night's Dream in Rio de Janeiro. He's acted in 18 movies, uh, most famously Werner Herzog Eats His Shoe, uh, he's translated into German the novel of Michael Ondaatje, the collected works of Billy the Kid. And of course, he's a very celebrated author in his own right, most recently of this hallucinatory book about trying to haul a huge steamship over a mountain in the Amazon while shooting Fitzgeraldo, just out in English called, perfectly I think, Conquest of the Useless. Uh, he also sits at the heart of the most riveting and provocative book of interviews I've ever read in my life, Herzog on Herzog. Apart from all of that, as some of you may know, he's a poet with a camera. 
And many years ago, the great French director, Francois Truffaut, called him the single most important film director on the planet. Uh, he's yeah, I think we all agree with that. <clears throat> he shot more than 60 movies, uh, 20 of them features, seven with a stolen camera. And as the years go on, he seems almost to be going into overdrive, making two, three movies, uh, major movies every year, each one shot on a different continent. Uh, he holds famously, as you know, or organizes a film, uh, school of rogue filmmaking in which he advises prospective directors that the best training for their career is either to be a bouncer in a sex club or to be the warden of a lunatic asylum. Uh, he, got, he cast Mick Jagger as a retarded man carrying a barbershop chair on his back up a mountain. He recently worked with uh, Nicolas Cage and Eva Mendez in a movie that many of us saw in this hall last week, Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans, interestingly screened on April Fool's Day. Uh, his 2005 movie, Grizzly Man, was probably the most searching European take on America and American innocence since Lolita. And 27 years after he won the Best Director Award at Cannes, last year he got an Academy Award nomination for Encounters at the End of the World. Uh, surely the strangest, the funniest, uh, the most beautiful movie any of us saw in 2008. But I think more than that, the reason why everyone has been clapping every time his name is mentioned the last six weeks in Santa Barbara is that he's really a sage. And I think the more the world moves towards distraction and trivia and reality TV, the more he moves in the opposite direction, towards the sublime and towards big dreams, uh, towards pushing the essential or even ecstatic truth as far as it will go. Uh, he reads Livy and ancient Greek in the original on the sets of his movies. He once walked three weeks through the snow from Munich to Paris in order to hand deliver a copy of his latest movie to the great film historian Lottie Eisner, author of The Haunted Screen. He's also, of course, got a legendary status as a su survivor. Uh, he was just doing an interview near his house in L.A. for the BBC, and of course, he got hit by a random sniper. Uh, of course, he calmly continued the interview, even as blood was seeping across his abdomen. And, you know, I still remember 35 years ago, when I was at college in England, all my friends and I ever wanted to do was race out to see the latest Herzog movie, whether it was A Geary Wrath of God or The Enigma of Caspar Hauser or Heart of Glass or many, many others. But I think we never could have guessed, and perhaps nor could Mr. Herzog guess, that two generations later, he would be even more at the center of global fascination. Partly, I think, because in an industry that's associated a little with corporate deals and, and safe choices, he's the rare human being, he's the rare independent-minded craftsman, and he's the rare uncompromising man of vision. And I think the last thing I'll say, which most of you have probably guessed from his movies, is he's almost startlingly open and unspoilt and approachable. When we asked him if he would come here tonight, only a couple of months ago, I think the minute the invitation arrived, he was on the phone. He said, sure, even though he was in Boulder, Colorado this morning, he's in the middle of a complicated shoot in France, but there were no agents, no middlemen, no negotiations. Uh, when Time Magazine last year called him one of the 100 most influential men on the planet, uh, they had a little write-up in which a fellow film director said, I would crawl on my knees to meet Herzog. We don't have to. Here he is.
Well, you just heard my very long-winded attempt to define you. How do you define yourself when people ask you who are you, what do you do? Well, I would like to make one slight correction to your yes. very kind uh, introduction. Yes, I walked from Munich to Paris when Lotte Eisner, who was about 80 at that time, <coughs> suffered from a massive stroke. A friend called me, come quickly, <coughs> Lotte is dying. She was very important for me because she was in a way a mentor for the new German cinema and for me much more than just for this kind of movement. Um, and uh, I didn't know what to do at the moment and I looked quickly into flight schedules and then I decided now I have to come on foot because I would not allow her to die. It was some sort of a pilgrimage, some sort of a protest, one million steps and she would not die because she was not allowed to die. She would not, not, not. So, and when I arrived, she didn't know that I was on foot. Uh, when I arrived, she was actually out of hospital. And she, uh, uh, she barely noticed that I had come on foot. <laughs> <coughs> Although I was dead tired. <coughs> and of course, she was important for, for me and for all of us because... Uh, being Jewish and, and really a target of the Nazis because she had written um, against uh, the emerging Nazis and in Der Stürmer, um, in the most important of their uh, um, newspapers. Uh, it was written a few weeks before Hitler took power. Uh, heads will roll and her head will be among the first so the very day uh, Hitler took power, she fled to France, was in hiding for years, survived barely, was uh, <clears throat> working in, uh, at the newly founded Cinémathèque in Paris with Henri Longlois. And she gave us legitimacy. She had the authority to declare us legitimate German culture again, and that was the importance. Mm. <clears throat> I might just add that... Um, about eight or nine years later, when she was close to 90, nobody exact knew exactly her age because she cheated, uh, but only from 75 on, strangely <laughs> enough. And um, she uh, wrote me a letter, uh, I should come, so I uh, went to her place and um, we would settle things always very casually. And she said to me, um, Listen, she said, uh, uh, I'm very old now and I cannot see anymore and I cannot see films, I cannot read books, I can barely walk. And she said a very beautiful, almost biblical word uh, in German, it is Lebenssatt, like a biblical prophet or, or uh, one of the biblical figures at age 880s, saturated of life finally dies, and she said, but there is still this spell upon me that I must not die. And I said to her casually, Lottie, if that's a problem, it's, it's being lifted by now. <laughs> and two weeks later, she died. And I, I, and, and I said to her, no, it's right, it's okay now. Mm. Uh, it, feels, it feels totally all right. And she died very, very few days later. And you also cast her delivering Mayan in a movie about the Sahara, didn't you? Uh, yes, in the film Fata Morgana, she speaks uh, 
the voice of the creation of the world. It's mm -hmm. a film about the creation of the world, the paradise and the golden age. And she speaks a part of the creation of the world, which is actually a, a text by um, a 16th century or 17th century text of Mayas in Kachikele language, mm -hmm. which is called Popol Vuh, mm -hmm. which later was actually taken by the composer Florian Fricke, who worked a lot with me as, as a name for his group, which was basically himself anyway. But uh, so, and she, uh, she read a slightly mm -hmm. modified version of Popol Vuh of the creation of the world. And she had a wonderful, wonderful voice. And it's interesting that you walked so far, mostly bowing before her deference, because you, d to see a film historian, because you don't see very many movies, do you? No, I do not. Uh, um, maybe two, three films is an average per year. Mm. Sometimes more, I was at the Berlin Film Festival uh, serving in the jury, and of course, as uh, being in the jury, I had to see all the films in competition, which was 20. So all of a sudden, I saw 20 <laughs> films. Uh, but um, I'm familiar with film history mm. and in the real good films I, I know. Mm. You see, the, the problem with festivals is a, is a very fundamental one. We have uh, 3,000, maybe 4,000 festivals per year worldwide, but we have only three or four real good films. So that's, <laughs> that's a fundamental problem. And sometimes it's not even three. So When we were coming over here, I was asking you about the fact you don't see movies, and you said, well, that's because you invented cinema, or invented cinema on your own terms. Could you...? In a way, that? yes. Uh, um. But uh, that uh, is a consequence how I, I grew up. I grew up in the, in the mountains in Bavaria. My mother fled with my older brother and me from bombardments of Munich, and we got stuck uh, there, and... Um, uh, there was nothing. I mean, we had no running water and mm. lived in a tiny, tiny place and uh, had only a, an outside uh, sort of toilet which was snowed under snow drifts in winter. Mm. And uh, uh, all summer long, we never had, I never had shoes until I was 11, only for winter, yes, and for, for late in the fall or early in spring. Mm. I was always barefoot. And we had to invent our own games. We had to invent our own, uh, our own tools. And it's quite remarkable because I'm working at the moment uh, on a film about a Paleolithic cave in southern France where there is uh, paintings were discovered dating back 32,000 years in time. At a time where the last Neanderthals were still roaming around and, and more than twice as old than the oldest other discovered paintings. And it's remarkable because at that time there were rhinos, woolly rhinos and woolly mammoths and lions and bison in Europe, in France. And, and uh, they found, for example, a shoulder blade of a bison with a deep, deeply embedded uh, stone lance point. I mean inches deep into the bone. How did they do it? Because they didn't have uh, arrows, bow and arrows. It was invented 20,000 years later. And what they used apparently were so-called atlatls. It's an it's a Aztec term for, for spear throwers. It's a prolongation of your arm 
and, and you accelerate uh, a spear with much greater kinetic energy. And, um, and we invented something similar as, as, yeah. as children. Uh, we carved a, a flat arrow from a piece of beech wood. It was quite flat and could sail well, and, and we didn't know that it sailed so well because we cut from the, from the uh, outer part of the beech wood, so it had a hump on its back. But we didn't know anything about aeronautics. Yeah. And we connected it with a hook to a ring and a whip, and we whipped it away. You couldn't aim anywhere. I mean, it went this way, that way, wherever. But it would fly something like 200, 250 yards further than any arrow would be sh you could shoot. And we invented it. <laughs> it's, now I'm very, very proud, and I was always into <laughs> inventing things, and I had no idea that cinema existed until I was 11. I had not yeah. seen cinema, and I didn't know it, it even existed. You never saw a banana till you were 13, I think, and you never made a phone call till you were 18, is that right? No, 17. Ah, okay. Yeah, yes. yes. Big difference, yeah. It was, um. yeah, it was a strange coincidence because uh, I, I tried to get films off the ground from age 14, 15 on, but uh, I was just a school child. I mean, really, because I, I grew up fairly late. And suddenly a, a production company, when I was 16, wanted to produce my project. But they hadn't seen me, so I wrote letters to them because I knew it was, it, it was not good to show up in person. And that's why I made my first phone call at age 17. So I had to make a phone call just to, to be at a distance. But it was unavoidable one day that uh, I had to see them in person. <laughs> and the secretary asked me in, and there were these two depraved men behind this huge desk vile and debased and they looked at me but they didn't look at me they looked beyond me as if the father had come into town with his child but there was only the child there and, and after 15 seconds with a very rude remarks from them I just turned around before I even had said a word I turned around and and started to work uh, the night shift as a welder in a steel factory but I was still for the next two years in school so that's given, how I earned money for doing my first films. But given you were inventing Stone Age tools, and you could have been a writer, and you could have been an opera director, and so many other things, what moved you to pick up the camera at that age? That's very hard to, to explain, but um, I can only say that there was a, a fairly short period of time, maybe two weeks, maybe maximum three weeks, where... Uh, everything somehow revealed itself for me. It was like a, a moment of, uh, I say it with a necessary caution, and you should t touch this term only with a pair of pliers. Um, it was some, some sort of, of uh, an illumination. Mm. And that was where I knew I had to travel on foot. Yeah. I knew the world would reveal itself to me by traveling on foot. And shortly after that, I set out and I wanted to uh, go into Albania, which was terra incognita at, this, at the time, and I walked along the border. And um, I knew I, I had some sort of a, I say it again with caution, a high duty mm. to be a poet, but poet of cinema. Mm -hmm. 
although I had hardly seen any significant films, uh, Tarzan and mm. Dr. Fu Manchu in particular. And um, I also, at the same time, it was clear, it, it started a, a, a dramatic religious phase and I converted to become a Catholic, mm. which somehow uh, dis dissipated itself fairly soon, within two or three years. Mm. Um, no, but it was a serious, uh, a serious decision, and it was an educated decision because I made myself familiar with the uh, dogmatic um, side of the Catholic Church, mm. the rituals, mm. and of course church hierarchy is a problem anywhere, not only Catholic Church. So, and it was an educated decision, and I read the Bible. Many people who are religious do not, have not read the Bible or are not in full. You still take Martin Luther's Bible on your sets, don't you? Uh, yes, when, when I know it's going to be tough. <laughs> I, I, take, I take the Bible with me, but it's the, the, the old uh, language of Martin Luther, the reformer, uh, in, in the early 16th century, so it's, it sounds a little bit like Chaucer English. Mm. Uh, and and I, I love his language, and he's a great, he was a great poet. Mm. And, and of course, I take uh, Livy, yes. the Second Punic War, with me, which has my two great heroes in it, Hannibal, um, who moved across the Alps with elephants and a whole army of, a motley army, uh, and his counterpart, uh, until today derided in history, is Fabius Maximus, um, who was uh, voted by Rome, by Roman citizen, to be um, the consul and, and leader in war against Hannibal after the two most catastrophic defeats that Rome ever uh, suffered, mm. and he he was the one who would always retreat, never face him in in battle because he knew that would be the end of Rome, and Western civilization we owe to him that because he saved Rome, and he saved the Occident. Otherwise, we would be more North African in or Phoenician in our in our culture, and it would have influenced probably America and and the entire West. And until today, his, his, he has his uh, nickname or his additional name, Fabius Maximus Cunctator, which means the, the hesitant, the coward, hesitant one. Who, and, and he was derided by, his, by, by Roman historiography. And, and until today, nobody knows Fabius Maximus. Everybody knows Hannibal, but mm. he defeated Hannibal by attrition and by perseverance, and by having, following a vision relentlessly, no matter what uh, people thought of him. And this is why I love him so much. <laughs> I mean, speaking right to that, you're never in your movies, but there's a very strong autobiographical element. There's some sense in which you're finding people who will live out some of the dramas or tensions that you're closest to your heart. Would you say that's true? They're deeply personal movies. Yes, they are personal movies, but I'm, I'm never circling around my own navel. No. So there's, no. I'm a storyteller and I'm inventive. And uh, people sometimes think, yeah, he must be like his characters in the movies. 
Now I'm, I'm not, people think I'm ob this obsessive Teutonic man who is, <laughs> who is going wild. Now I'm not, uh, my, my wife even maintains firmly that I'm a fluffy husband. <laughs> so... <laughs> Clinically sane. Right? Clinically sane. Yeah. Besides, clin uh, I'm in, in the whole uh, film industry, uh, when you look at Hollywood, I mean, it's completely crazed, and, and I see myself as the only one, literally the only one who is clinically sane. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Your last movie, you brought in 2.6 million under budget, which, as you said, is unheard of. And I, I remember Bruce Chatwin, who was on set with you when you were shooting Cobra Verde, called you a monument of sanity. So it's not just your testimony. Others have attested to this. Yes, there are some observers who, uh, who can <laughs> testify to that. And Bruce Chatwin, yeah, he was... He witnessed some, some wild stuff. We had uh, 800 Amazon warriors in training, which in Ghana, which was a complete, complete nightmare. And, and these, these women, these young women, they are very eloquent. I mean, every African per nature of their culture is, is eloquent because uh, they settle disputes uh, not by ballot they, they, they sit under a tree, the elders sit under a tree until there is a consensus. Mm. And it doesn't matter if it takes two days, three days, two weeks. They come to a consensus, unanimous. Mm. And this is remarkable. And, and wherever you are in sub-Sahara Africa, almost everyone you meet is, is a great orator. And these women were ferocious speakers and, and, of course, uh, they, 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 they went wild, and, and they were out of control sometimes. And, and Chatwin witnessed some of these incidents when they tried to lynch the line producer. <laughs> <laughs> Not the first time that's happened in your career, I think. But on our, on, our, on our way here, you said this interesting thing, which is that when everything is catastrophic, when the line producer is being attacked, when um, all the major players are being brought back to Washington or London or wherever, you turn not to religion, not to drink, not to the other diversions, but to language. It was such an interesting yes. thing for me to hear. That's why you kept your diary in the my conquest last, of the useless. My last resort, yeah. language. Which is a ground for you, or what does it do? I don't know what, what exactly it is. Uh, the only consolation I have and the only sort of anchor that I have that I focus and, and write in the middle of turmoil, mm. I write. Mm. and never changed the word conquest of the useless is not one word ever changed and when you look at the diaries that shrank the, my handwriting which is of normal size mm. shrank to microscopic size I could only decipher it 25 years later with these uh, glasses that you flip uh, over like, like a jeweler or a dentist sometimes have these glasses only that way I could even decipher it mm. and um, it was always uh, the last resort. And I think my writing is, is more intense and has more substance in my films. Hmm. For what reason? Because it's entirely your enterprise and there aren't other hands involved? I don't know what exactly it is. I, I say it with uh, necessary caution. There's no one nowadays who writes prose like me. Yeah. Nowhere. <laughs> In no country, in no, of no age group, there's no one who writes prose like me. Because it's so unique or so great, or both? No, I would, I would avoid the w word greatness, mm. but uh, 
uh, I shouldn't comment any further, but it's, <laughs> it's, just, it's just very good stuff. Mm. <laughs> I'll, I'll take us out of this little ditch and go back to the moment of, uh, <laughs> the moment of illumination. It seems to me that you pretty much knew at that time what your course was. I mean, what the kind of films you were making at 15 or visualizing at 15 are not so different from what you're doing now. Not really. I'm, I thank God on my knees that I never made the film that I proposed to these producers. Mm -hmm. it, it was a fairly stupid project. Or not, mm. not, really, not really mature, and, and it was one of these probably pubescent... Uh, attempts at, uh, at telling a story. I'm glad that it was never made. Mm. So, of course, I have, uh, I have made a lot of steps during my, my life working in cinema, and I've never stood still. I'm not the one who would do Aguirre 2, 3, 4, and no. 5. <laughs> and, and when you look at uh, Bad Lieutenant, or My Son, My Son, What Have You Done?, and try to compare it to, to earlier films like, uh, I don't know, Kaspar Hauser. Um, yes, you see, it's the, same, mm. it's the same person who made it, but of course I haven't stood still. Mm. However, however, Bad Lieutenant is very close to a very early feature film I made, uh, Even Dwarfs Started Small. Mm. Absolutely wild film, completely unruly. Mm. I have few of you have seen it. <laughs> it's... <laughs> and th yeah, that movie was something of a response to or attack on revolution, wasn't it? I mean, it was very controversial at the time, the Dwarfs movie. No, not really. It was never intended to be uh, uh, about uh, ridiculing the world revolution, which was at that time on vogue. Or so it, the film came out exactly at the time uh, where um, the student rebellion uh, started and... Uh, it was a whole conflagration of, of young people who, who wanted to change the world from today till tomorrow. Mm. And uh, it, it was some sort of a, uh, also a pubescent idea, juvenile mm. uh, people who, who thought cinema had only one reason and one purpose, and that was to serve the revolution in Germany, France, and in the Western world, and to replace uh, the democratic order in these countries by socialists, communist communes. Mm. So, and I had the feeling this was kind of silly because uh, they all were, were raving and ranting about uh, liberating the working class. And I asked, has, has anyone of you ever worked in a factory? Yeah. No, of course mm. not, but I had worked. Yeah in a factory. Yeah. Has anyone of you ever been in Africa and you are speaking about liberating Africa yeah. from the yoke of imperialism? And none of them had ever been in Africa, but I was in Africa and almost died in Africa when I was 18. Yeah. So uh, I, I had a different horizon, a different biography, a different experiences, yeah. and, and hence I, I was anathema for them. Yeah. And you're always moving forwards, as you said, but you can feel this same vision at work. When one sees a movie, it's a Werner Herzog movie. And it's almost as if you're excavating images from the deep within us or within yourself. I, I was really struck when I was reading Conquest of the Useless. In 1981, in the middle of the Amazon, you asked yourself, is there derangement in penguins? 26 years later, Encounters at the End of the World, there is the same question. But the seeds were there a quarter of a century before. You were working on the same ideas. 
Um, I don't even recall that I Ah, you must go back and see it. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, yeah. mm -hmm. it this, is, this is one of the things you're haunted yes. by, clearly. Peng yeah. Penguins and their possible derangement. Yeah. Well, um, yes, and, and, and yeah, of course, and, and, and the question in, in general, is there such a thing like derangement or insanity among animals? Mm. And, of course, what I asked the National Science Foundation when I applied for a, a grant as a, or an invitation in their uh, artists and writers program, and, and I said my questions uh, are probably of odd nature, but they are legitimate questions. Mm. Why is it that... Uh, uh, human beings ride on horses and chase the bad guy, uh, and like like in um, what is the TV series uh, Lone Ranger? Ah. Yeah, <laughs> and why is it that uh, a specific type of of ants um, raises flocks of uh, uh, of um, um, plant lice? Or tree or foliage lice, I don't know the scientific term for it right now. And, and they milk them for droplets of sugar. And why is it that, that uh, such an advanced creature like a chimp does not ride a goat in the su into the sunset in Monument Valley? <laughs> and I even had a painting done and showed it to them, and they were kind of staggered. They <laughs> didn't know what to do about it, but they invited me. <laughs> so I, I'm very grateful that uh, they had a sense of poetry. Didn't you once find a giant chicken, a dwarf horse, and a midget that you were going to put into motion? No, it was, a, it was a dream, actually. It uh, started... <laughs> It started out with Errol Morris, who was at that time very much into, into people who were raising chicken uh, north, of here, uh, north of San Francisco in Petaluma oh. County. It's a oh. chicken capital of the world. And, and, there were, and he was after people who, who uh, um, bred the featherless chicken and who, uh, who also... There was one man who, who created gigantic chicken and roosters. And there were two roosters that I, that I witnessed, Rolf and Weirdo. And they were as large as sheep. And they weighed 45 pounds and were completely and utterly aggressive. They would jump at you. The, the man who raised them uh, actually had to defend himself with a plastic bucket. And they would jump up and, and, and kick holes in it. And he would toss himself on top of, of one of these roosters, wrestle him to the ground, and then with a with a torch, with a with a blowtorch, uh, saw off the spurs, singe off the spurs, and and it was so impressive that now in my son, my son, what have you done? I I, I have this story narrated, and it's in front of um, uh, of ostriches because the, these roosters do not exist anymore. They they got extinct. They didn't procreate anymore, <laughs> and uh, I continued with these roosters, and I wanted to have the the largest rooster in the world, and the tiniest midget, and the tiniest horse on God's white earth. So horse and rider. Um, were smaller, the, the, the rooster would be taller than horse and rider together. And I wanted to go to Sequoia National Park and have 
the rooster chase horse and rider around the biggest tree on God's white earth. <laughs> no. I never managed to do it, but, but this story appears in My Son, My Son, What Have You Done, my last film. So whenever, whenever you see it, you, you should know the source of this whole crazy image. But I, I really loved this whole story. And, and two problems were there. Number one, the roosters were still... No, one main problem was there. The roosters were still in existence, but I found the tiniest horse in the world, which are hybrid breedings from old Spanish uh, 16th century stock, and they were tiniest, like, like a little dog. The owner wouldn't give the horse to me because he thought his horse would look ridiculous. <laughs> wouldn't give it to me. So I failed to do that. And when you visualize scenarios like this, it's probably, is it in response to your sense that we're all being fed very limited, that the human imagination is being truncated? And no, no, these no? right. images come to me easily and, <laughs> and they... I don't know how they how they come in me uh, at, at me. It's like sometimes, or most of the time, it's like home invasion. You you wake up in the morning and all of us, or at three in the morning and all of a sudden, your kitchen is full of burglars mm. who are who are emptying yeah. your fridge. Yeah. So what do you do with them? So uh, I I try to get them out, or the movies mm. get them on a screen quickly. Mm. Uh, but sometimes I can't. Sometimes there are obstacles, and I. I do understand when something is not doable. Mm -hmm. I, I do the most... Uh, uh, I, quite often I've done things that, that were seemingly impossible, but I, I always had a good, uh, a good sense of what was still doable and what was not. And when we were watching Bad Lieutenant last week, because it's a relatively big budget movie, we were wondering how much interference there had been or how much it was your pure vision... Um, I think it was um, that there were some attempts of interference, but, uh, but uh, uh, Nicolas Cage and I were in, in a very closely knit conspiracy. Mm. And we held together, and, and both of us said to each other, We are not going to sign, I'm not going to sign if he was not on board, and he wouldn't sign if I wasn't on board. Mm. So, that, that was a hard nut to crack for, for the producers. At the same time, they sensed, yes, I was, I was saving money, and I, I said to them, I immediately waived my right to have a trailer. I waived my right to have a personal assistant. I waived my right to have a chauffeur. And I waived my right to have a director's chair. I, I find them such an abomination anyway. You see these collapsible chairs and your names on it. It's all this kind of stages, ritual to sit in a chair like this. I've never had one. And I said to the production, this is going to save you 65 bucks. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and, and they noticed that, that, that I knew how to handle money. And actually, I delivered the film a few days under schedule and $2.6 million under budget. Now they want to marry me. <laughs> Nosferatu, the, you budgeted a script for $2, isn't that right? Just pencils and paper is all you felt you needed. Oh, no, uh, sorry. It's, no, that's a misunderstanding screenplay. Uh, 20th Century Fox wanted to, to do a couple of films with me. It, uh, 
it only ended up by them not producing but take, uh, distributing Nosferatu. And they asked me, uh, yeah, and who is going to finance the screenplay? And I said, I need $2. No, $1.50. I need 150 sheets of, of white, of blank paper, stationery. And I, I write it in a, in a week. So what do you mean by financing a screenplay? <laughs> and they, they were very puzzled and thought there was something not right with me. <laughs> but I think there was definitely something not right with them. <laughs> Well, you, and you do everything very quickly. Uh, Grizzly Man, you did in 29 days, I think. Yeah, well, shooting was something like uh, uh, 20 days, but because it was at a variety of locations in Alaska and then in Florida and in California. and so. Um, but the film was delivered, uh, and, well, editing and writing the commentary and recording the commentary in the primitive mix set was nine days. Mm. And it, it was not, not that I really planned to do it that quickly, but the uh, producer asked me, ah, his, when he saw some of the stuff, he said, ah, that would be great if we could show it at uh, uh, Sundance at the film festival. And I said, uh, we are easily, because I knew we were in, towards the end of September, and I knew it was some, sometime mid-January. I said, yeah, that's, I can do that easily. And he says, yeah, but uh, I have to... Uh, give you a caveat, and I said, what, what do you mean by that? He said, um, the um, deadline for entries expires in 10 days. Can you manage? And I said, uh, let me give it a try. Yes, I, I think I can, and in nine days I delivered the thing. <laughs> but yeah. it's easy to, nowadays because... Uh, you can edit digitally, although I'm still a man of celluloid, as long as I can shoot on celluloid. I like to, to edit digitally because you can edit so fast. You can edit almost, or I can edit almost as fast as I'm thinking. Mm. So uh, my son, my son, what have you done, was uh, delivered in its final cut five days after shooting was done. And I think this all speaks to exactly what you're offering people in your film school, which is you don't need film school, you don't need big budget, you need commitment, vision, and determination, probably, yeah? Something yes, like and, and of course uh, determination means to, to go rogue, uh, mm. which means uh, the borderline of, of where uh, illegal or criminal activity starts has to be somewhat blurred. Mm. And, and you have to... You have to to be determined to do your film, but you must not be caught. So that's another thing. And, and a film like uh, Fitzcarraldo would never have been made without a massive forgery of, of shooting uh, permits. Uh, I, uh, there, there was a coup d'etat all of a sudden. Nothing was, was allowed anymore. And I was stopped with my ship every three, four curves, bends of the river. And a new uh, military camp had sprung up. What all of us didn't know, that there was an imminent border war with uh, Ecuador mm. somehow building up. And I, uh, I went to Lima, got myself some, some very beautiful notary stationery. It's very old-fashioned, sort of like in the 1870s, 1880s. And um, I fabricated a four-page shooting permit with all sorts of permissions. I mean, 
everything in, in the book was allowed to me, and it was signed by the President of the Republic, <laughs> Belaunde, and his Secretary of State and his Chancellor of his office. Three signatures in stamps, masses of stamps there. And I showed it to the Coronel, who just 10 days before had a soldier open fire at me when I just moved on. Uh, he looked at this and saluted and said, Andale, pasale, pass on, yeah, and saluted, yeah. And you actually went And, and, and yeah. recently in, in Burma, I, yeah. I, I shot fairly sh few months after the uh, monks' uprising. Mm. I showed up in Burma, and of course, you cannot ask the, uh, the generals for permission. You do not side with them. Uh, and when you shoot secretly, you might get caught eventually. So I came with a shooting permit. Forged. Of course. Yes. <laughs> what else? And, and you have to. There's a, there's a natural right to forge a, a document yeah. when you have to deal with the with generals in Burma. Yeah. So just go for it. And you actually went and visited Belaunde too, didn't you, with a couple of Indians? Yes, uh, I um, not only, uh, well, we thought that uh, just paying the, the native Indian extras, uh, the Machigengas and Ashininka Kampas, um, of course we paid them fairly well, which is a small amount in dollars, but for them three, four, five times as much as I would uh, earn working for a lumber company, for example. And um, what we noticed is that they had uh, essential needs that uh, we could at least assist in. Uh, they needed a larger boat for moving their harvest to uh, two, three hundred kilometers further down to a small marketplace because traveling merchants would come up and down these rivers and, and buy their crop for, for a minimal price and sell it for five times as much at the market. So uh, we, we had a, a, a fairly large boat built for them, and then they were in trouble to have legal title for, for their territory because there was always incursion of uh, lumber companies, and it started um, uh, with incursions of, of oil exploration. In fact, right there, right next to the river on the other side, one of the largest deposits of natural gas was uh, was uh, discovered. So, uh, and you cannot get a legal title unless there is a map, there is a delineation of what for them is yeah, on that side of the river, that's where we grew up and where our ancestors are buried. And so, so we had a geographer um, creating a very detailed map and, and the whole thing got stuck in bureaucracy. So I, uh, I had some sort of a, an audience with the president, and uh, I took two representatives, uh, Machigengas, with me, um, and they were met the president, and it, it was a good meeting. Eventually, a few years later, they actually got the land title, hmm. and they, they um, are untouched in their village and in their culture. Of course, most of them cut their hair short and, and they only want to have a Honda motorcycle and want to watch kung fu films on DVDs. So it's, uh, there, there's no way to, to stop that, but, but they have 
a legal title to their territory. And you're, you're quite a fan of kung fu films, aren't you? And Tarzan and, and Fred Astaire, which many people might not expect. Yeah. Um. Well, in my, in my new film, I might even quote a film of Fred Astaire, uh, Broadway Melody of 1940. It's, it's a most wonderful sequence that was ever shot, in my opinion, in cinema, when Fred Astaire dances with his own shadow. It's actually three shadows, and he dances, and, and of course the three shadows move in absolute sync with him. And he stops, and all the three shadows stop, and he's watching the stopped shadows, and all of a sudden the shadows start to dance, and he's still watching and he tries to catch up with their movement, and, and in three, four seconds he catches up and he's completely in sync. It's an incredible, incredible uh, sequence. And a similar thing I, uh, I see in a Paleolithic cave, because, of course, uh, people who made these paintings completely and wonderfully accomplished art. It's not that uh, primitive little sketches. It is as accomplished as Lascaux or Altamira, mm. which came 16, 17, 18,000 years later. Mm. And they, uh, for, for them with torches, it must have been flickering, pulsating light, the animals moving. And there's one very strange place in this cave, in Chauvet Cave. There's a, a block of stone, which apparently had come down from the ceiling. And dead center, a skull of a cave bear is arranged. Mm. And near this, uh, near this uh, skull, uh, fires were set up in a line. Actually, people did not live in, in this uh, cave. There are no traces of human habitation. It was apparently only for ceremonies and only for painting. We do not know. But apparently there were some, as you set up footlights on a stage, and I can imagine that they danced in front of a, of a panel of horses and lions and, and woolly rhinos, and they would cast their shadows. And, uh, and I asked one of the science, scientists, and, and we kept talking about Fred Astaire, and I want, I, of course, I, I steered the discourse to Fred Astaire because I want to quote this film for two minutes. <laughs> so... And I think many people are surprised when you said steer the discourse. I like that because many people are surprised that your documentaries are stylized, rehearsed. In some cases, you put words into the voices of characters. And I think you have a philosophical reason for that, don't you? Or yes. Well, uh, I think that um, the time is over where we should believe that uh, facts constitute truth. Mm. Uh, it, it is a massive mistake. Um, and Cinema Verity has always postulated that. And, and it is a very, very silly concept mm. and not really deep plowing enough for, for anyone to take it really seriously. Cinema Verity ultimately is the answer of the 60s mm. in, in movies. But, uh, of course, uh, uh, you hear people uh, talking in, in an auditorium is is this one, four or five hundred filmmakers in Amsterdam, I saw that. And they are speaking about how documentaries should be made and, and we, should be, we should be only like a fly on the wall and not interfere. And I just couldn't take it anymore. And I grabbed the mic and I said, no, 
we should, we are directors, we are creators, we should be the hornets that sting. We, we go out there and, and, and then there was an, a roar of disgust against me and I shouted back, Happy New Year's losers. So, so that was no argument anymore. I just, in such cases, I lower my head in charge. But uh, the deeper reason behind, and, and I, I, I try to argue, yes, uh, uh, if, if you think... Uh, facts constitute something of greater importance or truth. Look at the uh, Manhattan phone directory. That would be the book of books mm. because four million entries are all correct, yeah. all factual. But do we know what they dream? Yeah. Does Mr. Alfred Smith cry into his pillow at night? Yeah. What do they think? Who, for whom uh, do they cast their ballots? We do not know and it doesn't illuminate us. And I've always said uh, cinema has a, has a strange, mysterious quality sometimes, like poetry, mm. that it can illuminate us, that it can give us a deeper insight. And I have uh, uh, termed the, uh, the, the, the word or coined the word ecstatic truth, the mm. ecstasy of truth, mm. almost like in late mid medieval mystics in religion would have an, an experience where you step beyond, where you step almost outside yourself and, and you have an, a deep illumination. And that is what, what poetry sometimes, in best of cases, can, uh, uh, can give us. And cinema sometimes, in best of cases, can give us. And that's what I'm looking for. And I'm looking for, for wild storytelling and for the fantasies and where uh, you work yourself into a story and in, in such a frenzy of storytelling that a winged cow that flies over the barn is, is absolutely not miraculous anymore. Mm. You see, that's, that's what cinema is all about, in my opinion. And that's what I, I try to do. And I think that's what you explain in this wonderful essay you've written on the sublime, isn't it? It's a whole vision of how to get at that ecstatic truth and its precedence. Yes, uh, of course, yeah, and it has, of course, it has to do with uh, um, a uh, writer of antiquity, Longinus, who is very close to my heart now because of thinking about these things. The, uh, this essay will be published in a few days at, in a magazine for the classics, uh, Orion, not Orion, but Arion. And, and I, once it is out, I will, I will also put it on my website. But I, I let it rest in the magazine for a while, and then in, in a month or so, I'll put it on my website as well. When you use terms like illumination, ecstasy, transcendence, those are very religious terms. Backstage, the minute I mentioned Jerusalem to you, your eyes lit up. I mean, yes. is there a religious component to your filmmaking? <sighs> Maybe a distant echo of, of mm. something that uh, has been uh, uh, in a dramatic way inside of me yeah. and has moved me uh, uh, in, in a very, very deep, fundamental way. And uh, yes, uh, although I'm not religious, but uh, I, I advise everyone, you must go to Jerusalem because there's no city like Jerusalem. Yeah. It's the city of cities. And, and then there's a, a long gap of nothing and 
more gaps and more gaps, and then maybe uh, Venice or uh, Paris or Rome or whatever, full a city full of prayers. You have no city in the world where there's prayer of great depth. You have the Al-Aqsa Mosque, uh, and, and right below it, the Wailing Wall, and the, uh, the Christians are praying at the sepulcher of yeah. Christ, and, uh, and then there's danger. It's yeah. danger. You know, maybe a bomb is yeah. going to explode yeah. in the cafe you are sitting. Yeah. Um, there, there are soldiers out there. You, you, you sense the tension. And of course, uh, there, there is real, real, real and justified tension yeah. what is going on there. And you see that the city tries to expand towards East Jerusalem. And, and uh, this is a very, very, very big problem for the entire Palestinian world. And, and these frictions are, are there. And uh, what is also so astonishing, there are certain places where you go from a, a church or a temple into down into a Roman foundation and then down into, I don't know, uh, uh, Salomonic mm -hmm. foundations. And you can even go deeper down and you end up in a Neolithic mm -hmm. layer stratum mm -hmm. of, of, uh, of excavations. So it's, it goes down 8,000 years in time. Yeah. It's just absolutely phenomenal. So you must go, you have been I've to been, Jerusalem, yeah. <laughs> I know it, but whoever of you has not been to Jerusalem, you, you, have, you have to see it. And what comes out of that riveting description is you can't have passion without danger, right? Well, this is a case, case where there is danger. Yeah, yeah. Uh, not, too, not too obvious, mm. uh, but I must say I haven't been there for 10 years or so, so I do not know exactly how it is nowadays, but uh, sometimes uh, at what I have done, there was danger, yes. Yeah. But, but I have not been a wimp. <laughs> if you toss something at me, I deal with it. Yeah. And I deal with it because I follow a vision. Mm. And, uh, and I have not been afraid. It's always when you, when you are working with a camera, um, you are not really that much afraid of soldiers who open fire at you. You just do your job. Mm. Or, or, for example, La Soufrière, a volcano that was about to explode. Uh, a little bit like Mount St. Helens, where there was no lava eruption but an explosion because of the geological structure of the mountain. So the, the island of Guadeloupe, the southern part, the southern island, was evacuated, and one single man had remained there. And I had the feeling I should, I should go there and film with him because he must have had a different attitude towards death because he lived on the slope of the, of the volcano itself and didn't care and didn't want to be evacuated. Mm. So I was interested in him. But when, when, you, when you approached the, the volcano, uh, it didn't look good because mm. it's jungle overgrown and all birds had disappeared. Mm. First thing you notice in a jungle are the voices of birds. Second, all the snakes had fled and, and uh, gone out into the ocean and drowned and had been washed back on shore. So I had the feeling it doesn't, that doesn't look good. <laughs> so, and, uh, well, we decided then we would shoot the film anyway. 
So there, there was danger, but it was ridiculous because the mountain never exploded. But there was a seismic crisis of 1,400 shock waves, and some of them quite massive. So that probably um, built down the kinetic energy inside the crust there that was about to explode. But of course, we couldn't know, and the scientists didn't know either, but they fled in a boat. <laughs> And, of course, you grew up in your very earliest years with cities in flame all around you and American yeah. bombers swooping around. And, I mean, that made Well, I was effect. only two weeks old yeah. when, when uh, bombs hit around. But, but later, when I was two, two years old, it was, it's my first, first memory. My mother rips my older brother and me out, mm. of, out of our beds mm. and climbs up on the slope right behind the house and we were in blankets, and, and she opens the blankets, and she says, boys, uh, I took you out because you must see this. The city of Rosenheim is burning, and the city of Rosenheim is uh, something like 40 kilometers away. Mm-hmm. And the entire sky beyond the valley was orange and red and pulsing. And this image of the pulsing sky, I, I never forget. Mm-hmm. So... Yes, uh, there was, but of course we were in a, in, a, in a safe area because there was nothing in this tiny little village and we lived outside of it. Mm. There was nothing to, to bombard, with the only exception. Uh, when Germany was occupied from all sides, the Ru- Russians from the East, Americans, French, British, Canadian, uh, converged and Germany shrank, shrank, shrank. And there was one last pocket left exactly where, where I grew up. And some of the last um, fanatical SS men converged there and then fled into the mountains. They threw off their uniforms and grabbed civilian clothes and climbed into the mountains. And werewolves were there. And I saw a werewolf once. Uh, it, it, and I was only two and a half or so. And he had built behind, uh, at the creek, had a, had a huge fire, flickering fly fire, and I see his red face flickering, and, and, and somebody grabbed me and took me back and said, this is a werewolf, this is a werewolf. And I thought he was a real wolf, and I did not understand that there were werewolves, uh, partisans, last fanatical defenders, and he had fled into the mountain. Yeah. Whether or not you believe in God, do you believe in the devil? I believe in stupidity, <laughs> in the presence of stupidity, which is as bad as it gets. Yeah. And you can, you can see it in, uh, in recent politics in Alaska, for example. <laughs> um, but at, at the same time, we, we shouldn't forget that there's something adorable about it, because uh, politics... In, in its essence is the definition of the enemy, of the opponent. And, and thanks God we have, a good, we have a couple of good targets. <laughs> now this isn't quite a transition, but you do live in L.A. And I many do, people yes. are surprised I'm married in Los Angeles, let's and face it. you've yeah. been happily there for a long time. Yes, uh, yes. Is that partly because it's such a crazy place? Or it, it, it attracts dreams so much as a terminus of dreams in some ways? Now I, uh, I can tell you what attracted me to uh, Los Angeles, but I can only say it in general terms. I lived in San Francisco and, uh, with my wife, and uh, 
she actually originally comes from Siberia, but is an American citizen. And after two or three years, we thought, oh, yeah, San Francisco is a joke. Nothing gets really done. It's leisurely. It's for the tourists. It's, we should go to the city with the most substance in the United States. And very quickly, in, in less than five minutes, it was clear we, we have to move to Los Angeles. Mm. For me, it's a city with the most cultural substance in the United States. But of course, you have to look beyond the glitz and glamour of mm. Hollywood. And then, of course, all of a sudden, it, it's, it's a very, very significant place. Mm. <clears throat> um, of course, if you are into finances, you have to move to New York. If you are into the oil business, Houston. But uh, New York is more into consuming of, of culture. Mm. In Los Angeles, things get, get done. And it's not only culture. It, I like the the uh, enormous cultural energies that are coming in through the Mexicans, for example. Uh, mm -hmm. And there's, there's actually um, a place where there's a lot of manufacturing. America doesn't really produce that much, but there's really, there's Lockheed and, and real serious manufacturing, which is always overlooked. Mm -hmm. So a, a very, very wonderful place, and, and I, I love it. How do you feel about America as a whole? Because when you see Bad Lieutenant, America looks as stricken and desperate and almost underwater as any country on earth. And I remember in Strosek that your three characters dreaming of America, and when they get there, it's a, it's a desolate wilderness almost. Well, I wouldn't live in your country if I, if I, didn't, yeah. if I didn't really like it. Mm. I, couldn't, I couldn't do that. Of course, sometimes I have ambivalent feelings, and that's obvious, and I have my ambivalent problems uh, and feelings towards Germany as well. Mm. So it's, it's not that, I, that I'm a blind, uh, in blind adoration of, uh, of the greatness of America, but I love America for, for quite a few things that you are... Uh, my wife, for example, she's a photographer, but her father is a geophysicist, some sort of an Einstein of geophysics, and he has uh, created a completely new model of understanding dynamics, uh, uh, subsurface dynamics. And she got him five patents. And everybody in the oil industry said, you cannot even start if you don't have four hundred, five, six, seven hundred thousand dollars $700,000. And we said to each other, as, as we understand America, if you are a barefoot a Quechua-speaking native Indian from the highlands of Peru. Mm. And if you have in, when invented the wheel, there would be, America would appreciate that, mm. and they would welcome you. Mm. And what we did, we explored the, the patent office in Washington, and indeed there is something like for small enterprises and for even a, a, a small committee that would steer you around the legal cliffs and explain the procedures to you. And she got the first patent and the most important for $11,000. Mm. And this is absolutely wonderful. Or, for example, I was fascinated about uh, the demise of the Galileo space probe, which was circling around Jupiter and then around a Jupiter moon and a fantastic voyage with incredible technical problems that were overcome with the most incredible ingenuity of engineers and mathematicians. 
and I, I talked myself into uh, the suicidal mission of Galileo because it was circling around a moon of Jupiter which apparently contains ice intense water and possibly microbic life. So with the last few ounces of chemical energy, the space probe was catapulted out of this uh, trajectory around the moon and, and uh, was sucked into the um, gravity field of Jupiter and, and ended as a superheated plasma. And it sent, it sent messages back to its last moment. And the last, we knew that 52 minutes this probe was already dead, but it still sends signals because the signals took 52 minutes. Mm. And there were hundreds of scientists crying, and some of them were uh, toasting each other with uh, champagne. And it was a wonderful moment. And then I, I was curious about how was it launched, and I found an, an archive, a NASA archive in Pasadena, completely not even a name out there, a dusty, huge warehouse, underfinanced, understaffed, because with the budget cuts of NASA, uh, this archive was completely ne neglected, and it has an importance right next to, to Los Angeles, Pasadena. And there is a, an archive with millions of test results, photos, films, videos, it's almost like uh, El Archivo de las Indias, the archive of the Indies in Seville, which contains all the documentation of the uh, conquest and exploration of the New World, including uh, uh, the letters of Columbus, including uh, whatever lawsuits at that time. And it's a, it's a monumental collection, and there's a monumental value of collection of the exploration of our solar system hmm. and nobody knows about it and I discovered a wonderful film shot by astronauts back in 1989 who launched Galileo from the cargo bay of this space shuttle and nobody had ever seen the film it was still sealed in its plastic from the lab and somehow it was forgotten and it's one of the most wonderful pieces of film I've ever seen. And I said, I must have that. I, I'm going to invent a whole story around this. And I had footage of under the ice in Antarctica at the Ross Shelf. And I immediately concocted a story. And then I asked these um, uh, people who, who worked at the archive, uh, how, can I, how is it possible that I can acquire these materials for a film, they said, what do you mean by acquire? It's property of the people. Mm. So yes, uh, because it was made by NASA astronauts. Mm. And I said, am I as a Bavarian also considered <laughs> as part of the people? And they said, yes, you are. Everyone on this planet is the people and it belongs to all of you. Mm. And I got the footage for free. So it's just fantastic, and, and this, is, this is unique, and this is wonderful, and this is why I love your country. This is why we love you. I mean, when you talk with such contagious curiosity and, and kind of visionary fervor, we're reminded of why your movies are so original and, and radical and different from most that we see. Where do you look for original voices? Do you, uh, it sounds like you're not looking in the cinema for them. If you're trying to be fired, it looks like you're 
you're going into the deep past, you're going into space, you're going into... Well, I'm just curious, and yeah. I'm always uh, somehow searching for images that none of us has ever seen. Yeah. But it is also a strange thing, because I, I do not believe that I create completely... Uh, complete artifacts that, that are out there and nobody will ever understand it. When you have a ship going over a mountain, it is an image that I, I'm sure belongs to all of us. It's like a dormant collective image that I can articulate. And you recognize it as if it were a, a secret brother that you had somewhere and you, I introduce you to your own, to your own brother. And you recognize yes. it. And it's not a foreign image. We yes. immediately understand it. And it's only by following that very individual impulse in you that you can reach everybody else to touch those individual places in them. Yes, but uh, of course, and there's, a, there, there's a side to it when, when you have to move a ship over a mountain, <laughs> 360 tons heavy, and the next place where you can buy a torchlight battery is 1,400 <laughs> kilometers down the river, and you've got thousand extras, native uh, Indians of the rainforest, and a madman as a leading character around. You know there, there, there are things that, that are going to be difficult. <laughs> and you have, to, you, you have to fortify yeah. yourself with enough uh, philosophy and, yeah. and, and, uh, and Livy's uh, second Punic War. Yes. And, and then still things come that nobody expects. Uh, uh, yeah. We had two plane crashes. Yeah. We, had, uh, we ran into a border war and I had built a, a camp for 1,000 people, 1,100 people, and it was attacked and burned to the ground and I had to start all over again. Yeah. And, but at the same time, there's, a, there's an exaggerated sort of fear of the jungle. Yes, it's just a forest. Um, and people think, yeah, it's all full of jaguars and it's, the snakes are crawling all over the place. Snakes flee from you like deer flees from you or like a fox would run away from you. Snakes flee from you. Of course, some, some exceptions. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, what, what happened uh, is one of the lumbermen who cleared a swath of jungle over the mountain where we had to pull the ship. We had 30, 35 of them and very tough men. And they were working with these chainsaws that make a terrible noise and they, uh, you have these fumes of, uh, of gas oil and, uh, and snakes. Uh, you, you wouldn't see a snake for miles. And they all work barefoot and I, I would work barefoot as well because you sink into a into the mud or into a swamp and when you pull your leg out your, your shoe is gone and you never find it mm. anymore so I, I would be barefoot like them but one of them one day was bitten twice in his foot and there's one snake Chuchupe Bushmaster I think and, and they are some of the most poisonous you, you have in mm. this, on this planet and, and it's known you have a survival of maybe 120 seconds and then there's cardiac arrest and pulmonary arrest. Mm. And, and we all knew it, but we had, we had some serum, some antidote, but the camp was 20 minutes away. Mm. So he had, in, in, in his shock, he had dropped the, the chainsaw and, and it stopped. 
and he calmly looked at the situation, sees the snake going away and sees it's a chuchupi and just picks up the chainsaw, starts it like an outboard engine and sawed his foot off. So I I wasn't there, but uh, I saw him 20 minutes later and he was just ashen. He was gray. All his body was gray, but he survived. So... But, but he was intelligent enough to, to immediately saw off his foot. Yeah. So you, you do have things like that once in a while. <laughs> now, many of us grew up with the image of you in that jungle in Les Blanc's Burden of Dreams. And what made such an impression on us in 1982 was you seemed so unsmiling and serious and intense. And now you seem so relaxed and um, yeah, upbeat. Well, there was, when, was that because you were on the set in the middle of all these calamities? Or yeah, there the was, I mean, there was a daily calamity. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, uh, not calamities that you hear from Hollywood. I mean, real, real, yeah. real calamities. Yeah. Um, yes, sure, there was pressure on me and, uh, and I was just functioning well and, and I'm serious. And I'm, but I'm always collected somehow. Mm. And uh, but people thought, yeah, I was I was crazed and I was out of my mind. And my own my own people tried to um, talk me out of my insanity. Mm. I mean, they touched me softly and spoke softly, like you speak to somebody who is really seriously ill. <laughs> and and then then it gets scary because you're all alone and there's no one left, not one. Mm. Who, who was on my side anymore. And when you have, you see, when you're, when you're among three, four, five people, that's fine. But when you have thousand mm. and there's not one, not one, then it's tougher. Yeah. <laughs> but your film suggests, and you said, what you said earlier about Hollywood suggests, in some ways it's the system that's crazy. And the person who's pursuing something is the least crazy among them. Um, well, I, I'm not crazy at yeah. all. <laughs> I'm certain of that. Yeah. Um, I do my job well. I deliver. Yeah. I've never left an unfinished film. So, uh, yeah, and, and when, you look, uh, when you look at the ritualistic behavior in Hollywood, it's, it's kind of bizarre. But it's mm. fun to watch it sometimes. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Dare I ask about women in your movies? Um, there are not too many, but there and are... they all play prostitutes, don't they? No, not, um, not, not necessarily. All. You have Land of Silence and Darkness, yeah, a woman yes, who is deaf and blind at the same time. You have Juliane Köpke in uh, Wings of Hope. Yes. Uh, you have um, Ines de Atienza, I mean, an actress mm-hmm. from Mexico in Aguirre, The Wrath of God. Um, but we've and, also got... And the, yeah. strange thing, the strange thing is <clears throat> I have... Th- of the five, six uh, <coughs> burglars that have invaded at the moment, mm. there are three feature films, all with women as leading characters, mm. and one film with uh, twin sisters, identical twin sisters, so even two of them yes. against the rest of the world. Yeah. It's an unca- uncanny story. Do you want to share with the audience this movie about the twins, or is it still in No, I, I, I mean, it's, it would be easy to write the screenplay because it's such an evident, wonderful story. It's about a real case of twins in, in England who came from Yorkshire originally, and they are the only known case <coughs> where twins or two people speak in unison 
as if connected by telepathy. Mm. Of course, if you if you approach them and knock at their door and, and they say uh, hello and wonderful to see you and please come in and could we offer you a cup of tea, sure, that can be ritualistically uh, trained. Mm. But if you ask them a question they couldn't expect, they would still answer in unison. Mm. Quite often one of the sisters would speak the first part of the sentence and her sister would accentuate with a key word and then take over the rest of the sentence and the other one would accentuate with a key word. And when they make up their mind, they whisper to each other like, like chicken and they speak in unison to each other. It's completely strange. And the case was uh, apparently uh, they had a, a catastrophic childhood with an abusive father who apparently sexually molested them and they um, on, on the garden at the fence there was a garden shed shared with the uh, property next doors where a, a, a fat ugly purple faced trucker lived and he had a relationship they started a relationship with him and for years they had a sexual relationship and they were deeply and madly in love together with him and one day the trucker tells him, girls, it has to stop because I'm getting married. And they couldn't take it. And they tossed themselves in front of his truck, make him stop and, and beat him up with, in sync with their handbags or with her, poked at him in sync with their umbrellas. And it went on for a couple of years until the, the truck driver went to court to have a restraining order. And now in, in British common law, uh, you have to testify alone, but they, there was an exception in legal history, never happens. They testified in, in unison together. <laughs> and, they, and they, because the judge was, was very wise, he saw that they were in, in immediate panics when, when they were somehow separated, and they jabbed across the courtroom in, in sync with their fingers and pointed at the, at the truck driver and, and yelled, he's lying. The liar is lying. Don't you hear every word that he says is a lie? And then it comes. The bucking fastard is lying. At the same moment, the same slip of tongue. The bucking fastard. And that's going to be the title of the film. <laughs> and, uh, <clears throat> and of course, the trucker gets, got his restraining order. And they flee to an aunt... Uh, in the, at the edge of the Scottish Highlands and they immediately take a vow. We are going to dig a tunnel through this entire mountain because somewhere on the other side there must be a better world. And they know it will take them more or it will take 15, 20, maybe 30 human consecutive lives until they have drilled through the mountain and they start it anyway. And in two and a half years, they are something like 50 feet into the mountain. And uh, they have raised a, a, a little fox because uh, hunters had poisoned a fox den and, and one little fox survived and they warm him under their armpits uh, alternatively. And in a year, the fox is grown up and follows them. And uh, in, in this tunnel, uh, there are cracks on the side and all of a sudden the fox disappears. And they are frantic because the fox doesn't come back. And they start to chisel 
to the side and all of a sudden the side wall collapses and they find themselves in a fantastic world of, of crystal cathedrals and stalactites and stalagmites and they, they explore it and they give it names and, and then it's night and the fox is found. And next day they put on their wedding gowns. They have their wedding gowns because they know maybe they reach the other end. And all of a sudden they stumble across railroad tracks, narrow railroad tracks, a little bit like Michael Jackson's Neverland train. And, and all of a sudden a train like this comes passing by full of tourists. And the conductor is explaining about the cave and they fall in love with the voice of that conductor and they follow and, and of course for, for decades this system of caves has been discovered and has been used for tourism and they walk all, all day long and follow the tracks and it exactly sh at 6 o'clock p.m. sharp they reach the other end and there's an employee who rattles down this steel uh, sort of, of Venetian blinds and locks it And they say, stop, 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 uh, let us out, let us out. And he looks at them and is completely perplexed, this employee. And he says, I cannot let you out. Nobody can be in there because we had 262 people entering and 262 people exiting. You cut, end of the film. <laughs> so. so. Well. I think there are now 800 people waiting for you to make it, so please do so. I have many, many more questions, but I don't want to take us away from the twins, so why don't we open it up to anyone here who, uh, who has questions. You captivate me. And by the silence in the room, when you talk, I think you're captivating everybody. What is it about the language that you work on? You say that's your one true love? or No, it's not my one true love. I, I simply try to say that uh, I have the feeling, and I may be wrong, I may be misleading myself, I have the feeling that my prose is better than my movies. But I, I might be wrong, uh, and it's not my only love. Uh, that that would be that would be a wrong perspective. I love cinema and I love everything about cinema, including acting, including producing, including directing or editing, uh, creating music for it. Um, so I, I have a, a, a multifaceted love for cinema, but I also have a great love for, for literature. I have a great love for. Uh, athlete, being athletic, of course, I'm too old to be a world champion in ski, ski flying today, but it has been my dream. And I, I dream of being in, in, in the perfect soccer game where all the best that ever were are playing in one team and I'm among them. So that's a, that's a very vivid dream and it shows how much I love that, that kind of sport. And... Uh, Of course, I, I love my children, and I love my wife. So there's, it's not, and, and sometimes, sure, in a way, in a way, I'm in love with the world. And this is a very significant moment in encounters at the end of the, of the world. There's a, there's a caterpillar driver in McMurdo Station. He's a Bulgarian, 
uh, and he holds a degree in philosophy and another degree in comparative literature. And he speaks about his childhood and how his grandmother or his yeah his grandmother read the Iliad and the Odyssey to him before he could even read or write, and about the Argonauts and their voyages and and he says and now he said something which hit me like a bolt of lightning. He says that was when I fell in love with the world, and I just held my breath and I thought this is the description of me. I fell in love with the world. So uh, I'm, I'm not as limited as you may believe. Are you going to make a movie or a, a documentary about uh, Galileo or the space program or space in general? <clears throat> not really, um, but I used material as a backbone, as an essential part of a science fiction film which is called The Wild Blue Yonder. And it's absolutely wild storytelling. And, and Brad Dourif plays an alien. And I shot in Nyland near the Salton Sea. So, um, but uh, it's odd that you're asking because uh, I came to America first uh, as, as a student. I got a scholarship even though I was a complete fraud at university. But they thought I was kind of good. And I wanted to go uh, to Pittsburgh. I, they offered me to go to any of the Ivy League uh, schools here. And I said, now I want to go to a city where there is real, um, where there is real working class people and where there is steel industry, not knowing that it was already over with it. And uh, I, I went to university there and, and dropped this after four days. It was so bad and so stupid. And now I was left alone, had no money uh, and no guest family anymore and no free passage, and I started to work. And strangely enough, there was a project, a documentary, a series of documentaries on advanced uh, futuristic propulsion systems that NASA was into, but mostly theoretical studies and some first test experiments. And I, I worked for a, a project, one of these 14 films about uh, um, a plasma propulsion where they were starting to build these super-cooled, extremely strong uh, magnets to hold it in space without any material around it because any material would melt away or, or evaporize. So uh, the, the earliest serious practical sort of thing I, I ever did was for NASA, and then I was, I, I, it was uh, highly classified stuff, and very quickly authorities found out that I was a foreigner, and number two, that my visa status didn't allow me to, to work uh, uh, on, on my own uh, to make money in the country. So I was summoned to, um, to immigration, and I knew I would be expelled and I would be shipped back to Germany, which I didn't want. So I fled across the border to Mexico, and I lived there for a while. And, and a funny side note, I, I lived uh, uh, by weekly, on, on each Saturday I worked at rodeos, at charriadas, as, as a rider on, on, uh, on bulls, and I can't even ride a horse. So I was some sort of the, the, the clown for, uh, for the audience. And I... I, I fared well uh, 
each week I was injured, but I, I, I earned enough money to survive the next week. But uh, the beauty of, of, uh, of these space programs is, uh, of course, much of our fantasies go into that. Much of what we are dreaming about another world, possibly a better world out there, uh, or travel in space uh, is, is a wonderful thing for making movies. And uh, at the same time, of course, I, I'm completely convinced we'll never, no matter what advances in technology are being made in the next 100,000 years, we will never leave our solar system. That's our limit. Because reaching the next uh, planet only four and a half years away, light years away, uh, would take with the fastest speed that you can reach for a human being by accelerating it, him or her without killing the person, it would take you 120,000 years to reach that, that place. So how do you do that? We just won't do it. But uh, uh, even though we, we know that there's a sobering aspect to, to our uh, most elaborate fantasies, uh, still it is, it is beautiful to, to imagine us out in, in different galaxies Mr. Herzog, you, you say that you're not a wimp. I believe you. Um, no, I'm not. <laughs> but uh, what, what do you fear, and have those fears changed over the years? Um, no, I think I was like, like everyone else. Although I was physically never really afraid, I... I, I did ski jumping on, on, over ramps, so you, you really need to have physical courage to do that. But of course, uh, there was always something like every one of us has some sort of fears, even though in my case probably a little bit more limited than for others. And, and then there, there were some uh, very harsh moments uh, when I got into prison in Africa and I was mistreated, I mean, seriously, seriously mistreated, somehow fear disappeared. It's not in my dictionary anymore. It's, I, I do not, I can't even relate to it. I, do, I don't know what it is. But I'm not reckless, so I'm, I'm prudent. I'm always, it's not that... Being fearless means to be reckless. Werner, you talked a few years ago about how we needed new images. Is that happening? How are you helping to create new images for cinema? Yes, I, I think in a way it's, it's always there. You can always sense it in a way. Um, and when you look at... Uh, the, no, well, the wild blue yonder, including uh, when you look at uh, encounters at the end of the world, I, I show you images that nobody has ever seen under the ice of the uh, Ross ice shelf. And it's a complete science fiction, science fiction uh, locale. Um, now I'm going into a cave in southern France, and it's very unusual what, what I see there. And um, the cave was discovered uh, 14 years ago and has been instantly sealed off. 
and only very occasionally scientists are allowed in there. So I'm the, I have talked myself into shooting a film inside there, of course with enormous restrictions, but I can shoot in there. And I, I will show in 3D the cave, and of course I'm talking to the scientists as well, but you will see uh, images that, uh, you, yeah, well, some of it, most, much of it has been published in a, in a, in a book. So you, you know basically if you, if you have access to the book, you know what expects you there. But the, the way it's, it's arranged in this cave and niches and, and bulging uh, pieces of rock that are all, all of a sudden the bulging hump of a bison or, or a woolly mammoth, to, to see it in 3D is something which is far, far beyond photography. Yeah, sometimes you, you do have a subject that doesn't really allow it, where the story is much more important, or the inner story is more important than just the, the quest for, for new images. But uh, whenever you look at films that I made, there's always a sense or a quest that you can feel in my films. I was speaking with friends about uh, text messaging and how it is ruining the English language by way of abbreviations and shortening of phrases, etc. And uh, more globally, I wanted perhaps uh, insight, your insight, on what modern technology may be doing for the better or for the worse, uh, as far as your trade is concerned. Well, it's, uh, it's all our own decision whether you are using text messaging or not. I do not. I do not have a cell phone. But probably because I made my first phone call when I was 17. <laughs> so, but um, now uh, you, are, you are pointing to, to, to much deeper problems than text messaging. One of the problems is that nobody reads anymore. Uh, you do not, and, and I preach to, to those who attend the Rogue Film School, read, 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 read. You will never be a filmmaker if you do not read. Or you will never be a philosopher. You will never understand, get, get a hold on, of, on the world, a grasp on it, if you do not read. And I have a dictum. Those who are too much on the internet or too much on television, they lose the world. And those who read, gain it. You win the world if you read. So and, uh, uh, that's one side. And, and even uh, I see it with a friend of mine who is professor for classics at Boston University. The students that are arriving nowadays uh, haven't read much at all and, and cannot articulate five coherent sentences in writing. So it's catastrophic. And uh, the, the absence of, of uh, culture of, of reading and, and reading books is, is something which is, a, is an overwhelming worldwide phenomenon and, and very, very, very dangerous. And of course, text messaging is, is only one of the bastard children of, of that absence of reading. And uh, in a way, it's uh, how, you, how you read the world, how you understand the world, how you uh, open concepts or perspectives about the world. And uh, 
A second major thing which uh, sounds like a paradox, but I think it is not, with the explosive evolution of technical tools of communication, and that is text messaging, uh, cell phones, television, radio, um, you just name it, internet, uh, blogs, um, whatever is, is out there. Uh, it has had a an, an, an very almost explosive spreading out and, and uh, propulsion of these things. And in reverse proportions, I believe our solitudes are increasing. And you see it with the text messages. Yes, there is contact, but it's contact without significance. There's no depth about it anymore. We are not isolated, but in a philosophical sense, I think deeply alienated and, and deep in deep solitudes. And I do believe that these instruments of, of communication in its enormous uh, spreading power reduce us to solitudes. So that's, that's my take on it. And you do not need to use it. Uh. I was wondering what language you write in when you write your prose or when you write your scripts or just ideas, uh, since you're multilingual. Um, I have to write in my own language, German. But I have actually written a few things in English recently, and uh, but but I couldn't write poetry, a real uh, substantial texts in prose, uh, if if it were not my my own language. But for example, uh, Conquest of the Useless is an interesting case, because a very good professional translator translated it, and I looked at the text and in many, many, many cases I did not hear my voice. And I made something like close to 3,000 amendments and corrections and stylistic improvements. 3,000 in the entire book. Now the book, and, and I have a, I have a, a sense for language uh, uh, which is in, in a way sharpened because partly because I had to learn Latin and ancient Greek in school, and, and that is a very, very good, tough schooling. And I've always been fascinated by languages. And I, now I'm fascinated by, by the death of languages. We have uh, uh, something like 6,000 languages left on, on this planet. And within 50 years, towards the end of your lives, here, many of you are young, 90% of the languages will, will, be, uh, will be dead and will disappear without a trace. And these languages, it doesn't mean that uh, a grammar and a vocabulary, a dictionary disappears. Language is always a way to understand the world and to describe it and to create perspectives and to, um, to create the world in, in terms of language. 90% will be gone, and, and it is, in a way, I see too much uh, attention towards uh, uh, the, the problematic uh, um, almost near extinction of whales or the snow leopard or so, but nobody talks about dying cultures and dying languages. Nobody talks about it. And it is, I know it is a cultural essay, it's a moral imperative. There's such a thing as a cultural imperative. 
we have to do something about it. And there's a long-term project that I would like to do about dying languages, in particular about last speakers of languages. And I met one in Australia, an Aborigine, who was in a home in a home for assisted living. He was something like 80 years. He didn't know his age, but uh, apparently. And he was referred as a mute, but he was not mute. He, he just had no one left on this in, in, this, uh, in this world with whom he could communicate. He was the last, final, definitive speaker of his language. And you saw him uh, walking up and down the corridor and sometimes chanting to himself. And then at the end of the corridor, there was a, a soft drink vending machine, but there was nothing in it. But he had a pocket full of coins and he would toss he would insert a coin and listen how the coin rattled down and settled. And then he would walk up and down and then put another coin into it all afternoon long. I've seen that. And at night when he was asleep, the employees would open the vending machine, take the coins out and put it back in his pocket. So, uh, and that was left of him. And uh, it, there, there are tragedies out there of, of unspeakable proportions. And I'm always worried uh, when, when people speak about, uh, I don't know, the, the cougars uh, having such a difficult life now because the suburbs are spreading. Yes, I have a difficult life. Uh, but I, I think uh, we should pay more attention to, to language, in particular the value of language and the death of languages and we'll be left with only a few McDonald's and Coca-Cola languages. I wanted to ask you about your role as an actor, and I was wondering how you ended up working with the director, Harmony Kareen, in the film Julian Donkey Boy, if you could talk a little bit about your relationship mm -hmm. with that director, and uh, in that role you play kind of an abusive father, and <laughs> it's a really interesting, fascinating film. And so if you could just yeah. talk a bit about that. Yeah, Harmony Corinne is a wonderful, very, very creative, forceful spirit, completely going wild, and I love him for that. And he has done some very, very remarkable films. And uh, I really think he's one of the major, major emerging figures. And uh, I met him by coincidence at the Telluride Film Festival, and it turned out that uh, one of his two all-time favorite films was uh, Even Dwarf Started Small. And, um, and he was planning to do a film and wanted me to play his father. He said, I'm going to play your son because you are like my father in a way. And I said, okay, yes, I'll, I'll, I know that I'm all right as an actor. Let's do it. But at the end, he chickened out. <laughs> And he, he only directed the movie and, and uh, replaced himself with an actor, with a young actor. So, and, and there was no, no real screenplay. However, there was, a, there was a wonderful creative mood on the set. And uh, much of the text that I'm speaking there, I had to invent at, on the spot. And it was some, the, my finest moment is when I put down it. I'm at dinner table with a crazed grandmother with a son who is a wrestler and a failure and a, 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 sister, a daughter who is impregnated by, 
by her older insane brother who has committed murder. So I'm sitting at the table and, and, and I know the only thing I knew he was going to read a poem to me which, and I had to put him down and, and I knew I had to be as dysfunctional and as vile and disba debased and, and hostile towards my children as much as I could get. As it, as, as I, yeah, and, and now I'm sitting there and I always had a couple of cameras on, little uh, digital cameras and I see some the red lights blinking here and there one and there one. And they were still fiddling with the camera and I said, I turned to Harmony and I said, Harmony, are you rolling already? And he nodded to me. And I looked at the table and, and my family and I said, what's the dialogue? And he said, speak. So, and I... I had to invent something, and I'm talking about the end of uh, uh, of the film of Dirty Harry, how he blasts the bad guy uh, with his gun, and, and then he asks him, uh, you have to ask yourself one question, do you feel lucky? <laughs> and, and, and so it just had to come as, as it had to come, and uh, I like the film for, for being that open for for inventing sometimes the pressure was very high to to do something that was hostile enough. Um, and I was in a second, that was Julian Donkey Boy, and I was in a second film, uh, um, I forgot the title, what is it, uh, with impose, or, or lookalikes of Michael Jackson and Marilyn Monroe, uh, pardon? Yes, Mr. Lonely, sorry, I, I'm too jet-lagged to remember the title, I'm sorry. Yes, uh, it's good to work with him and I like him and uh, I hope he, um, he uh, will have as much discipline as he has creativity. You mentioned earlier that you feel there are about two or three films that are your favorites. I'm curious as to which, what they are. Uh, I have uh, two or three hundred probably favorites. Now I would say um, a film that is hard to to find uh, by a French uh, filmmaker Jean Rouge, and it's called uh, Le Maître Fou, The Mad Masters. Um, very very controversial film, but totally ingenious. Uh, Rashomon by Kurosawa. Everything that Griffith has made is a Shakespeare of cinema, in my opinion. Uh, David Lynch's films, most of them, just film history is so full of, of masterpieces. Nosferatu by Murnau. Um, even the Lumiere brothers made wonderful movies uh, 110, 15, 14 years ago. Just wonderful stuff already at that time. I say that because just a few days ago I happened to pass through Lyon and as I had a few hours to wait for some crew members, I went to the um, Institut Lumière. Uh, the Lumière brothers actually um, had a factory for making film plates and they invented the camera and projectors and in basically invented 
cinema as we have it today and uh, you could see some of the earliest films that they made and they're very accomplished films. Totally, totally stunning. Russian films, uh, for example, Putovkin, almost everything he made, or uh, what is it, uh, Ivan the Terrible by Eisenstein. I think Panzerko uh, uh, Battleship Patyomkin is an overrated film, but if you see uh, Ivan the Terrible, it's just a wonderful, incredible movie. So there are many out there. And, and you better find your own, your own uh, favorites. Can you talk a little bit about Rashomon? We showed the restored print here in March. What is it about Rashomon that really strikes you, Vernon? It's very hard to, to articulate in face of, of a film of such greatness. Uh, probably the most striking of all is uh, the balance of the film. Um, there's an equilibrium there in, in storytelling. In fact, it is the same story told four times over from different persons and different perspectives, and hence the story each time is a, is a different story um, in its details um, and sometimes in its essence. Um, and there is something like aesthetics in the film, which I never have cared about my own movies, although I know aesthetics creeps in anyway, no matter what, or at least in, in the movies that I make. In Rashomon, it, it is probably more planned, but what happens in the film is uh, something like, a, like an almost perfect e equilibrium that I have never seen in any other film. So it's, very, it's, it's a great masterpiece. And um, I, I advise everyone who likes cinema to, to take a good look at the film. And of course, everything he's made has, has a touch of greatness. Um, and uh, there's nothing but admiration. And the strange thing is I, I've, I'm incapable to, to learn from great films. I always learn from the lousiest, from the failures. I try to avoid the mistakes of the others. But in face of Rashomon, I'm just, uh, I'm just in awe and I, I want to see it again. I ask this question to a lot of people because I think it elicits interesting responses and it's not limited to anyone's profession. But um, what is your happiest memory? And on a side note, will you ever do a series of audiobooks? Because I could listen to your voice for hours and hours and hours. Uh, the second part of your question is easy to answer. There is an audiobook of uh, the book of Walking in Ice when I traveled on foot to Paris. Uh, it, it is in existence, uh, and I may do uh, Conquest of the Useless, maybe in, uh, in English. There's also my, that's a good thing to mention, there's a young, very, very wonderful young American filmmaker whose name is Ramin Bahrani. He made three feature films within the last two years or so. Roger Ebert admires him and... Uh, promotes him, and he's of Iranian descent. Wonderful man, and he made a film, Plastic Bag, and I speak the voice of the plastic bag. It's a 17-minute film 
which you can view on the internet in YouTube. And I'm, I'm quite good in doing the, the, the voice of the plastic bag. And I did the voice, I did the voice for a cartoon series on television. It's, uh, I have never seen the, the series myself, but it looks very vicious and really intelligent. Boondocks. And I, yes, and I, I do a, a boondocks. Uh, there's a, a TV, a German TV reporter who, who um, covers the convention, the Democratic convention, which uh, put Obama on the ticket. And I'm reporting there, oh, yeah, this is, and very, very excited, yeah. It's, it's wonderful that a Negro is being elected. And I speak of Negroes and I'm totally racist without even noticing, and it's just wild, and, and, I liked, and, and they liked my voice. It's, it's going to be out fairly soon. Or was it out already? And, uh, but the first part of your question, uh, happiest moments, very hard for me to speak about it because I do not have a, a real sense of happiness. I, I do believe that even though it's in the preamble of the American Constitution, the pursuit of happiness has never occurred to me as a real goal. And I, I do not really care that much whether I'm happy or unhappy. I, I, and I think, I believe, and I may be wrong philosophically, I believe that pursuit of happiness is a goal in life a legitimate, clear goal in life. Strangely enough, I do not have goals in life. I have goals, I have other goals, goals, and I would call it goals in existence. Um, and those are dif different things. Uh, for example, what gives meaning to, to, to my life or to our lives? It doesn't have to be happiness. It can be something else. Something else. For some very serious people that I know, it is, for example, a sense of justice, which is much more than happiness. So very, very hard for me to, to recall and articulate myself in, in, in terms of happiness. But um, it's very, very hard. Yes, I, I can say when, when, I, when I flew through the air from a ramp, um, um, and I landed, uh, that was sheer ecstasy, sheer happiness. Yes, there are some moments, but uh, it's very hard for me to even recall them. But it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. Well, you've given us an ecstatic moment. Um, I think yours is the most eloquent, far-ranging, and invigorating voice I can remember on this stage. So thank you in the face of jet lag and a million other commitments for coming and sharing your energy. Thank and you vision. very much. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.